Hey there, it's Michelle Pilpich. I am a registered dietitian, certified personal trainer, and your host of this podcast, Simply Intuitive. On the show, we are talking about all things intuitive eating, active living, and breaking down what's true versus what's a myth in the wellness world so that you can focus on simple and sustainable ways to actually improve your health. If you're feeling overwhelmed by all of the health information floating around and you just want to know what to do to feel your best, you're in the right place. Not only are specific tips coming your way, but you can also count on conversations that will challenge your perspective on what health really means. So I hope you'll stick around for many episodes to come, but for now, let's get into today's show. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for being here. Hey, Michelle. So excited. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Of course. I'm so excited to chat. Um, We have known each other for a while. I'm thinking now. We first met, what, four years ago? 2019. Mm -hmm. Whenever you moved to LA, it was literally right after that book club in your apartment. But Yes, which was so funny because I think that was two weeks after I moved. And I remember being at work on a Friday telling my coworkers, oh, I'm, I'm hosting a book club this weekend. And they all knew I had just moved and they were like, with who? And I was like, strangers. <laughs> and then it lived on for so long. It was great. It did. Yeah. We actually have book club on Saturday, so it's still going. It. Wait, that makes me so happy. Oh my gosh. I left a legacy, even though I didn't stay in California. You definitely did. Yeah. <laughs> So you are in California. You are a dietitian. Um, Can you share more of who you are and what you do for everyone listening? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm an eating disorder dietitian in private practice. I started my private practice about uh, six months ago in January of this year. Prior to that, I was at a group practice um, doing outpatient eating disorder work and intuitive eating work. And I'll go back to the beginning, I guess. I used to live in New York City and I was working in nonprofit event planning. And then I joined a gym and I started getting really into working out. And once you start going to the gym, like getting into nutrition is just sort of a natural thing um, that I think comes up. So I got really into both fitness and nutrition at that time and started feeling like, oh, I don't really want to do my job anymore. I'd rather be looking up nutrition stuff, cooking, running, all of those things. And that's when I decided to become a registered dietitian and took a couple years of like prereqs before I went to get my master's degree since my undergrad was in religion and Spanish. So I had to start really from the beginning. Um, Yeah, we share that. (laughs) Yeah, it's a journey. But I think... Through through grad school and then after my internship, it's funny because I definitely feel like I started off with my passion for nutrition and fitness in an unhealthy space where it was definitely more like disordered eating or even like a subclinical eating disorder. I was pretty like obsessed and regimented with everything around my food and went from being a, you know, a person who ate everything to then a pescatarian, then a vegetarian, then a vegan. And, you know, I went through that whole journey and now I eat everything again. But I think that that my story is unfortunately like not so unique. 
that a lot of people who are in the nutrition and dietetic space enter it from a place of maybe being emotionally or physically unhealthy with their relationship with food and exercise in their body. And it was actually like through grad school and through my internship that learning more information, learning about health at every size, learning about intuitive eating um, and deepening my relationship with like other people and my partner that I was able to sort of grow out of that and heal from that. And now I don't struggle with food or exercise or my body. Um, but wow, this is a really long answer. (laughs) (laughs) It's great. We love a long answer here. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, how did I get to my current space? You know, I never really, never really considered the impact that adoption had had on my life until a couple years ago. Um, and when I started to explore that and explore my personal history, I realized that like being, how do I put this? Like being so, um, regimented with my food and my exercise was a really great way that I managed my anxiety and also sought, sought more, like I was seeking an identity and I was also seeking belonging. And I found that in the food and nutrition and fitness and running space. So that was what, what I, that was the only thing I could do at that time to, to meet those needs. Um, and when those things kind of fell away, suddenly I had space to explore the impact of my adoption on my, on my life. And I realized that it's something that's so common um, among other adoptees and I didn't see any dietitians talking about it. So I thought, wow, I got to start talking about this. I'm so glad you do talk about that because it's something that before reading all of your content, I was truly unaware about and, and it, it just hadn't been brought to my attention. I hadn't worked with a client who had been adopted. And so I just never thought about that crossover and how they impact each other. And it makes so much sense as I read and take in more of your content and education. And so mm-hmm. I would love for you to explain that pathway and trajectory from adoption to potential eating disorder, dealing with these struggles and how I know you have mentioned adoption is a trauma, which I don't know if other people will relate. I think that's something that can be kind of hard to read or see or understand because somebody who hasn't experienced that, you know, I look at at that as like, oh my gosh, well, what? Like somebody who is adopting a child is doing such a good thing. Like that can seem harsh and like what I don't want to hear that it's like we kind of shy away from that so mm-hmm. I would love to hear your explanation of the the trauma of adoption and kind of what it does to a person's brain and body and everything yeah of course I think your your reaction is so common um it is a really hard thing to hear because the dominant narrative in our in our country is that you know adoption is saving a child or or, um, creating a family. And for that reason, a lot of adoptees go through 
you know, long stretches of their life, decades of their life without really thinking about the impact that their adoption had on them. And that was certainly the case for me. Um, in, in the community, we actually have a word for it. It's called being in the fog and then coming out of the fog. So I would say like, I came out of the fog, you know, about two years ago. Um, not every person resonates with that. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's very, it's a very individual experience, but. And was that around the same time that you were discovering intuitive eating and coming out of disordered eating or was this late? How did that line up? Yeah, that was actually later. So I would say like, mm, I would say that I started to feel like fully, I started to learn about intuitive eating while I was in grad school. So that was like 2017, 2018. Okay. Um, and I didn't start talking about thinking about it, my adoption experience until um, 2021 when I was doing some really like deep wow, ther- okay. therapy work. So mm-hmm. that's what I, that's what I meant when I said before, like I didn't have brain space to even like touch upon my past when right. I was too busy, like, planning my workouts and picking restaurants to eat at. That's so important (laughs) to acknowledge because I always tell people that, you know, you don't have the capacity in your brain for everything else in life. (laughs) Not only obsessing over things, but also potentially undernourishing yourself. So a little bit of a tangent, but um, back to the, the trauma of adoption. Yes. So when, when, when you're adopted in in many cases you are are born in i'm trying to figure out how far back to go okay so so if you think about it like when when you're in your in utero you possibly are inside in your mother's body when she's experiencing a lot of stress and a lot of trauma, possibly, you know, a financial crisis or an abusive relationship. So already you're living in an environment where inside the body, you're being flooded with stress hormones all the time. Um, And we know that that has an impact on like brain chemistry and nervous system, um, the way that we're wired when we're like literally growing inside. And then imagine you come into the world in potentially a stressful or traumatic way, the only person that you know at that point is your your mother, your connection with your mother, and then potentially you you know may get some skin to skin time or you may not, and then you're removed from that situation. Some babies will stay in the hospital. Some babies will go into foster care. Um, you know, I ha- I know a lot of people who are in a different generation who were in like care homes for many months. So then you're you're separated from your biological family. Can I interrupt for a minute? Just can you define what the care home is and what that oh. looks like? Yeah. So I don't I don't think that this is like a common practice anymore. Um, but definitely in the in the like fifties, sixties, maybe even seventies, babies would go into I, I don't know if there was ca- called an orphanage, but like basically a place where like all different babies would be in a in cribs and there would be a couple people there um to sort of watch them and feed them and play with them but for from a lot of the experiences that I've heard like there was not enough staff um Mm -hmm. and people you know people have learned that they were like neglected in those situations so already you're going from 
you know, being with your being with your bio mom to then being with total strangers, possibly not getting the your needs met. And that sort of sets you up for being disconnected from your body because that's an overwhelming traumatic and emotional experience that even though we can't remember is stored in our bodies. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of um a lot of adoptees experience number one, not really feeling, not really feeling like they are in their body, not really knowing how to take care of their body or to understand their emotions or their sensations. And so that can manifest in so many different ways. And one of those ways definitely is um, disordered eating behaviors or a full-blown eating disorder. Right. Is there a list or other things that are really common, other ways that this manifests that are maybe potential things that you would want adoptees to kind of be on the lookout for almost if, you know, you think about your time with this gym culture and everything and potentially not realizing at first that, oh, this is disordered. Is there any kind of other common experience that you're like, hey, if you are adopted, also make sure that this behavior is not going to the extreme? (laughs) Yeah, I think um, what comes to mind is things like perfectionism, people pleasing, um, really, I mean, anything to the extreme, like, maybe having, uh, you know, exercising too much or, or jumping from relationship to relationship or engaging in, you know, what we call risky behaviors, like drinking, using drugs, um, a lot, or I'm trying to think of like high adrenaline behaviors to feel something, um, motorcycles, mountain biking, that kind of thing. Yeah, it 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 just it is so different for every person, and the way that I conceptualize it is just like these. All of these behaviors are an attempt for us to to soothe ourselves or feel safe in some way or to get some need met. Um, and they it can also be like a ne- those things that we choose that that we choose to survive in the moment can also ha- have a negative impact depending on what it is. Right. So how did you come to realize that this unhealthy relationship with food was rooted in disconnection from your body? Hmm. Juicy question. (laughs) I, I think the first thing is, you know, I was reflecting on my past with my current therapist and sort of going through some of my 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 old behaviors and I had never I had never talked about it with anyone before so she was reflecting to me like wow that sounds pretty extreme and I was like what <laughs> like no, I was just I was just doing you know what any nutrition student did like I it, it was I did not think that it was weird. I just thought I was doing what I had to do to be healthy. Um, and that's so important to point out because you're right. It is kind of rampant in the nutrition field that mm-hmm. the people who have taken nutrition to the extreme, and it is not everyone, um, but of course, 
it makes people want to pursue it as a career and talk about it all the time. And so it does take a lot of self-awareness to make sure that you are connected to the field in a healthy way. A thousand percent. Yeah, I think I think my therapist had me write down, she had me doing some kind of journal prompt and I decided to write down everything that I was doing um, in my early to mid twenties. And I looked at it through my like eating disorder dietitian lens. Yeah. And I was like, oh, damn. (laughs) (laughs) Like if that, if I had walked through, if I had walked into my office, like 24 year old, 24, 25 year old me into my office. Now I'm in my thirties. I would have been like, we have some stuff to talk about. We have some things to unpack. Um, But I, I don't, I didn't realize how disconnected I was until I became connected again. Yes. And I want to talk about that process, that reconnection process. You know, how does someone get there as an adoptee with the awareness of this trauma, with the awareness that this is not something that typical eating disorder recovery is talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's really important to have a to have a to have a really strong connection with your therapist if you're able to have access to a therapist. Um, and I would recommend an adoption competent therapist, you know, someone who's very familiar with the issues. But that, I know that's not accessible to everyone. Um, you know, my therapist is not an adoptee, but she is a trauma therapist. So she that, that was one of the first questions that she asked me um, when I started going to therapy. And so I knew that it was always in the back of her mind. Um, mm-hmm. But the process of reconnecting to, you know, to my body for me was slowing down, which I had sort of replaced my, my, my obsession with food and my exercise habit with, with overworking myself and being Mm. like a workaholic. So I had a lot of trouble slowing down. Um, so I practiced that I practiced doing body scans, um, getting more involved with my hands, like getting back to my creative work, doing watercolors, um, sewing and also beginning to recognize like, Hey, this is this, these feelings, these sensations I'm having, like, that's my, that's my anxiety or that's my fear. That's my panic and pausing and taking time to notice and name that and actually sit with it or, or address it in some way, as opposed to what I would have done in the past is, you know, go for a run or just ignore it and keep working or just push through it and pretend like I don't feel it, you know? Right. Did I answer your question? You did. Those are great examples. And you mentioned earlier that the nutrition and fitness was a way to feel belonging and connection. And I hear that from a lot of clients that health and nutrition and this obsession that they have can kind of become their identity, especially from the outside. People will look at them as, oh, you're the healthy one. You're the fit one. You're the runner. So, yep, <laughs> lots of heads out of here. Um, I think it would be really wonderful for people who maybe are in that place and relate to that as their identity to hear you 
describe your identity now. You know, where would you say you find your identity now? Well, first off, I will say as an adoptee, that is a very difficult question to ask because I feel like I am always searching to, I'm like, I feel like my narrative is like, I don't know who I am. Like, I'm so confused. Um, But I know what I'm, I know what I'm not, right? I, I used to identify like, I'm a foodie, I'm a runner, I'm Mm -hmm. a health nut. Those things are not my identity. I am a curious person. I am creative. I'm kind. You know, I appreciate the beauty in in the world and I appreciate mm-hmm. connecting with other people and I still love like I think I've always loved food and I still love it, but in a different way than I did before and like I appreciate good flavors and exploring new places through food and having food be you know, a part of, you know, my memories and my celebrations, but not having it be like the end all be all. So I was going to reflect that exactly because those traits that you describe, you know, creativity, for example, you can be creative in the kitchen with meals and how you combine flavors. And so, you know, I think people might sometimes hesitate to say, well, I don't want to be criticized for being a foodie. I do love food. And yes, that's great. I think probably every dietitian loves food (laughs) and it's not everything. You know, we can survive when we have a meal that isn't great and Mm -hmm. it's those nuances. Um, So I, I thank you for describing all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Just to to your point, like about identity, the reason why I actually, um, started going to my current therapist in 2020 was because I felt like my whole identity was being a dietitian, specifically being an intuitive eating and eating disorder dietitian. And I remember walking down the street being like, I am just like a walking dietitian. Like, I don't know any, I can't say anything else about myself. Like I can only talk about eating disorders. Um, so that's, that was a big indicator to me that like, something was off. Like I have, like there has to be more complexity in here than just over identifying with my job. Right. So it's like over identifying with food and exercise. Okay. I, you know, I feel healed in that space, but now all I am is my job. And I was like, that's not right either. (laughs) And I think that really relates to clients in recovery as well, because I have seen people go from the disordered eating to almost an obsessive relationship with intuitive eating. And then it creates a lot of fear of, well, can I have a salad or is that disordered? Can I go for a run or is that disordered? And everything is still being portrayed in black and white. And so it's, this is making me think of how I talk about um, body image and how body positivity doesn't have to be your goal. It's neutrality and it's just not having it even be a major part of your identity, your personality, your self-image, any of that. So I think people working on their relationship with food can think of this in that way as well. Like, yes, we want you to be intuitive eaters and to have it be something that is not top of mind all the time. Yes. I I 100% agree. It's so easy to swing from like, you know, let's say you're being, you're obsessed with food and exercise in an unhealthy way. And now you're committed to pursuing recovery and like, 
all you can think about is intuitive eating and doing mm. recovery right, you know, in quotation right. marks. And that's not what we're aiming for. We have to find that healthy right. middle. Yeah. And yes, it does take a lot more thought and effort in the beginning. And so if anyone's like, oh my God, am I thinking about it too much? Like yes. there's a time and a place, lots of yes. nuance here. <laughs> so talking about that journey to intuitive eating, um, embodiment is definitely a huge part of this with this history of adoption. Is there anything else you would add in terms of how working towards full recovery looks for an adoptee specifically? Yes. One, one really important point is our relationship with our body and how, how our bodies are different from the bodies of our adoptive families. Um, Mm. So when I was really, when I was really into um, fitness and food, that became something that I could connect with my parents about. Like they were very proud of me for all of the things I was doing to work towards my health. And there was just so much for us to talk about because they were really into that too. Um, So I guess that's what I, what I mean by like, it's a point of connection. Mm -hmm. And so you have to sweat when you're, when you're um, adopted, you have to start to separate out what is, you know, what is truly something that's like authentic to me that I enjoy, that's my identity and my values. And what is just a placeholder for like meeting that needed connection. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing being like, if we don't look like our parents, sometimes manipulating our food or our exercise can be an attempt to fit in with them or to look more like them. Um, you know, I know people that were born into larger bodies, but their adoptive families had smaller bodies. And so Mm -hmm. they're constantly trying to make themselves smaller to feel like they're a part of the family. Um, And that's really complicated, right? Because that's never gonna, that's never gonna go away. You're never gonna, you're never gonna suddenly look at your, you know, adoptive parents and be like, Oh, like, genetically, like, it's, it's there, like, it's just not there. Um, But I think, Starting to starting to feel safe inside your own body and to individuate is really important. Um, and for a lot of adoptees, like they've just never talked about this before. Mm-hmm. Um, I get a lot of direct messages on Instagram, like, "Whoa, I have these problems, and I've never mm-hmm. thought about it, and now I'm thinking about it, and I have a lot to talk about in therapy." <laughs> <laughs> I bet because it it isn't something most people talk about. It's something that is really a blind spot in the recovery world. Um, so I'm curious, what what do you think is missing? What would you encourage adoptees to do when they have that moment and they realize I need to work on this, I want to work on this? How do they go about it getting appropriate care? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think obviously seeing you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if you need nutrition support, I would definitely recommend getting support from an adoptee because really it is like it is a whole we have a whole community, a whole language of different words and things to describe our experience that most people just have no idea about. Um 
it's really hard for me to say like what a good starting point would be if you're just starting off on this journey as an adoptee because it kind of sounds like your question is like what do you do if you're I guess I'll, I'll clarify are you asking like what do you think someone should do if they're just coming out of the fog or like specifically with their body or food if they're realizing that they have a disordered relationship with food and or exercise and want support with that and they also are adoptee and now hearing you know, oh, this is probably more a part of my disorder relationship than I realized. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah, I think working working with a therapist to sort of understand or or a dietitian, honestly, to understand like what is what is the purpose of the things that I'm doing and how is it serving me? Um because for most people, it's like a lot of just un- discomfort and, and overwhelm in the body, a lot of nervous system dysregulation, um, and beginning to explore your story, right? For, for a lot of people, talking about adoption in the beginning is very like physically and emotionally overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we both know from like our our clinical work and exposure work, like it's not going to get less overwhelming until we start tackling it little by little. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a very complicated process of like starting to, to talk about it, explore it, understanding like what's, what's mine and what's my parents or even starting to name like, Hey, I've, you know, I feel really out of control around food or I have a really unhealthy relationship with food and that makes sense. It's not my fault, right? I've had this early, I've had this, you know, this experience of early disconnection from my body and I was living in a, in a family maybe that didn't look like me and that was really hard. So it, it makes sense that I started to do XYZ when I was eight, nine, 10. It makes sense that I've been doing this since I was 12 and I didn't realize you know, so I think there's just like so many layers to the process. Yeah. And I would imagine, you know, I'm thinking now about, I, I wrote my master's paper actually about the genetic components of anorexia specifically. And so I imagine there also could be a lot of genetic information that some people just might not have access to that's also contributing to mm-hmm. this relationship with food on top of everything else. Yeah. Like, a, like, I don't know what it would be like to have, you know, access to medical history, but I mean, I I was part of, I am part of a closed adoption. So it took me a long time to get that information. Um, But if you don't have any any information, it's really disorienting. Like, Mm -hmm. how do you know if anyone in your family has a history of an eating disorder? How do you know if anyone in your family is prone to certain mental health diagnoses or struggles? Um, You might just not know. And so if you don't know, and your parents, your adoptive parents don't know, then it can be easy to miss the signs and it can be harder to intervene early. Um, So I think that's a really good point too. It's just like, there's a big question mark. Right. There can be a lot of question marks. It sounds like. (laughs) Unfortunately. Yes. Yes, There's a lot of question marks. Yeah. Do you have any recommendations for clinicians on where to get more education, how to become more informed and to better serve adoptee clients? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the first, 
the first thing I would say is notice if anything comes up for you when you start to hear these, you know, words and phrases like adoption is trauma. Just hearing that, what comes up, like what narrative comes up for you and reflecting on where, where does that come from? You know, why, why is it that I might think that way? And looking at it from the lens that we look at, you know, food and nutrition as eating disorder, dietitians and therapists, like it is not black and white. There is so much nuance and there's room for everyone's experience. So learning from adoptee experiences, I think is very important and to listen to people's stories. There's an amazing podcast called Adoptees On that's been going on for years. Um, Haley Radke is the host and she uh, interviews adoptees and they talk about their life and their stories. And that was one of the first things that I started doing when I was coming out of the fog and realizing like, oh my gosh, like so many of these feelings that I thought I was alone in feeling, I'm, I'm not alone. So mm-hmm. I think it can be helpful for clinicians who maybe have less exposure to this to just start just start getting exposed to people's feelings and thoughts and their stories and recognizing that for some people, this may be like a really, really big and important thing that they're exploring. And for other people, maybe not, you know, I, I know some, I know some adopted people who they don't talk about it. They don't have any desire to talk about it. You know, they're chill. That's their story. That's not my story. But I think we, we can't assume that like, we can't assume that everyone is like in either camp. We just have to be open to the plethora of stories and also knowing like that your early life and your early history does have an impact on the rest of your life. Right. And that openness to anyone's story is, it relates to everything. I think like I don't know if you feel this way. I think adoption can be kind of a taboo topic and people can use use it as an insult with siblings. Oh, you're mm-hmm. adopted. It's like, that's not yeah. um, a study. But that just being open to people's experience also reminds me of, you know, how we like to approach just body image and identity. And some people in larger bodies identify with the word fat and want to reclaim it and use it. And some people don't. And so it's just like anything else, letting Mm -hmm. whoever you're speaking to lead the way about their own connection to their life and their history and their identity. Yes. And that is so key what you just said, like letting them lead the way, because Mm -hmm. if you're not adopted and you're not in that, in that community, there's just no way that you can truly know what it's like. So I would I would refrain from making statements if someone's opening up to you about their story like oh it's you know it's so great that you have you got such a great family or you should be grateful or how lucky you are to have no. <laughs> like <laughs> yes. I want to dive into this because you mentioned this before we started recording kind of how people can inadvertently say the wrong things when asking questions about adoption. And I'm positive that I do not know what to say and what not to say. So can you share some of that, the things people commonly say or ask that you would actually steer folks away from and what can be more helpful if someone does genuinely want to have a conversation about adoption with someone and both parties are open to it? 
what's the best way to go about that? Yeah. Uh, Some of the things that are pretty common that I've heard that I would encourage people not to say um, are where, where are you, where are you really from? Um, I got that. I, I, people are surprised that I got that question, but when I was younger, I think people had this assumption that like all adoption was um, international. So they were like, what country are you from? Like, I'm from, you know, Baltimore. I'm from down the road. <laughs> like, right. you know, I'm not, I'm not from a different country. So I would not, I would not ask that question unless uh, I would not ask that question. I would wait for someone to volunteer that information. Um, also things like, do you know your real parents? Mm, air quotes being used here (laughs) yes don't don't ask that because already the way that you're phrasing it is putting a judgment or an assumption on like which set of parents is like legitimate or real and that's just hurtful um I think people can be like a little bit nosy (laughs) I don't know if like that's the right word but things like oh like you know have you have you started searching for your biological parents or um like do you do you know this and this about your your family history those are really intense and personal questions so like you said I think openness from both people having the conversation is really important and just being very um curious so the questions I would suggest are like whoa what was that like for you like Mm. and being honest like wow I've I this that's a lot I'm not even sure what to say Mm -hmm. right just recognizing that like you don't have to have all the words um a lot of times because this stuff hasn't been talked about for a lot of people as adoptees we don't even have the words So like, we get it. Um, But just like the general questions, like, what was that like for you? You know, how, how did that shape you? What, like, what is it like being an adoptee? Like, how did that impact you? Um, And just going from there, like letting the person lead the way and, and realizing that this might be a difficult conversation. And, and also that like a lot of adoptees are very on guard when someone asks that. And they're immediately like, once again, I know I'm generalizing, but from my experiences in support groups, people are very, are waiting for like something invalidating or dismissive to be said. And so just try not to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Bottom line, don't be mean. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, honestly, I don't think it's about being mean. I think it's, I think it's just people don't really know a lot about a lot about it and we don't talk about it right. really ever. Right. It's reminding me so much of just so many of the experiences people have in recovery, working on eating disorders, working on their body image. I remember when I worked in a residential center on family days, um, the families that were coming to visit their loved ones in treatment were always so nervous about saying the wrong thing, saying something to upset someone. And so it's it's kind of similar, just anything that is a sensitive subject or something that we don't talk about often, there's a lot of awkwardness and mm-hmm. fear about, you know, things going wrong. Um, and I had a thought and now I lost it. 
Oh, and so, you know, there's also that, that crucial aspect of willingness. And so I, I just keep thinking to the, the body image and analogies and stuff, which I don't know if that's helpful, but. Um, no, I like it because you keep bringing it back to it. Thank you. <laughs> because you know, I'm thinking right now about like clients wanting to decline a weight at the doctor's office or stand up for themselves in any of these sensitive subject situations. So for someone who is an adoptee and is getting those questions and doesn't want to share a lot, do you have suggestions on how to redirect the conversation, how to respond to the questions that somebody maybe doesn't realize that's actually very personal and I don't want to answer right now mm. or ever? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just said it, right? Like, oh, that's actually really personal. I don't feel comfortable talking mm. about that. I don't that's know if I have more to share because I have not gotten past that point. Like that is really where mm. I'm at with it too, of if someone you know, I'm, I'm practicing being more open about it throughout my healing journey, but there are times when I don't have the capacity to go there. So I'll just say like, I'm really not comfortable right now. You know, I can't talk about mm-hmm. that right now. Um, yeah. I love that that's your answer because I think a lot of people who struggle with people pleasing, especially, which you mentioned can be very common. That doesn't feel like enough to just say, I'm sorry, I can't. No, I'm sorry. No. (laughs) Yep. It's (laughs) really hard. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the classic example that I think many of us dietitians give around the holidays when somebody is pressuring you to eat more food. No is a complete sentence and you can just say no. Yeah. I, yeah. Snaps to that. It's just like, it is awkward. Um, I've had awkward situations where someone asks me something and I say that and then there's like a strange, awkward silence. But then you it just, you know, you move on, right? Like, right. And I think it more reflects the person asking than you. You know, that's you standing up for yourself and taking care of yourself. And it's probably just the realization of like, oh, shoot, I'm upset with my... It, it's like that shame and worry. Did I do something wrong? And like probably wanting you to say, oh, it's fine. No, you're okay, which you don't have to do. Yes, yes. Yeah, you're so right. I think a lot of people, um, I always assume best of intentions. Like people just don't want to hurt my feelings or upset me. And I totally get that. And, um, you know, I think to your point about like what, what what can clinicians do? I think if you know that your client is an adoptee, um, you can ask questions to see if if that's something that they have I don't know how to phrase it like you can ask questions like oh like how how has being adopted impacted your relationship with food and mm-hmm. see what they say right because you might get the answer of like no that doesn't have any impact or you might have someone who's you know already been exploring that um but not making any assumptions always asking like what do you, what do you call your parents? Do you call them mom and dad? Or do you, how do you call your, do you know your biological family? And like, what do you call them? Do you call them by their name? Do you call them bio mom? Do you call them birth mom? Like we have, like I said, we have so many different words and just like anything in our field, being trauma informed, asking consent, going slow, all of those things apply. And what, 
hopefully every clinician knows if you don't feel comfortable um, with the specialty refer out. Obviously, we have an amazing referral in you right here. <laughs> I'm sure you have a network of informed therapists that you can share with people and refer them to. So there are so many resources. Um, yes. And I'm also curious now that I mentioned <laughs> the support people in the lives of those recovering from eating disorders. Do you have any other advice or thoughts or maybe even personal stories of other supports, friends, colleagues, anybody, just anybody else in your life who you're close to who's not a clinician and not an immediate family member, um, but who is supporting someone in their recovery? Like, what can they do? Is there anything that you found particularly helpful, anything unique to this recovery as an adoptee journey that you would want support persons to know? Hmm. Hmm. I think that perhaps it's not like so different than what I might might tell other supports. Um, but hmm. Okay. So one one thing that comes to mind is many many adoptees live with a pretty intense fear of being alone, feeling alone, feeling abandoned. Um, and that makes sense <laughs> for a lot of reasons. And even though logically we may know that we're not alone anymore or we can't be abandoned because we're adults, those feelings are really strong so I think it's even more important for people who are supporting adoptees in their healing journey to reassure them that they're there, they're there for them, they're here for them, they're not going anywhere. Obviously, right? If that's if that's true, if you're if you're in it for the long haul, um, because that can be, it can be really hard to like feel that and believe that. So someone's actions being really consistent of like constantly showing up and following through with the things that you say you're going to do is so important. Um, I think I'll just leave it at that. Thank you. And I also love that you initially said maybe it's not that different because I think that's important for people to know too. There can be a feeling in general with supporting someone in recovery of like, oh, they have this huge difference from me. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. And just leaning into like, actually, no, maybe you do know, like you can just connect instead of create a disconnect. And like, that's actually a lot more supporting. supporting. Oh yeah. What am I trying to say? Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's, I, I totally agree. And I think people, I think people really should lean into more of like, I don't know what to say. I don't have the perfect words. I wish mm -hmm. I did. I'm right here. I'm not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. So beautifully said. I, I feel like we can kind of leave it on that note, but is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want to add to this conversation? Hmm. 
I think the one thing that I want to add is that if you if you like search or Google adoptees and nutrition or adoption nutrition, for, number one, you're not going to find a lot of information. Um, but the information that is there is mainly about children. And it's mainly geared towards adoptive parents who are struggling with feeding their adopted child. And so I guess the two things I want everyone to know are not only children struggle, I know plenty of adult adoptees who are struggling. So if you're still struggling, you are not alone and there is support for you and it's not your fault. If your relationship with food is really difficult, if your relationship with your body is really difficult, there are a lot of things that come along with being adopted that make feeding yourself and caring for yourself and being connected to your body and your emotions and your sensations really hard. So it's not your fault. I love that. And will you send me the link to that podcast you mentioned and anything else um, that you think will be helpful? I will list all of those in the show notes so people have that. Yeah, I have so many good um, podcast recommendations and I also have books, but when you when you asked, I wasn't sure if I would say all the book names right. So I was like, <laughs> I'll just give it to you yeah. after. <laughs> you can link them. Yes. Oh, I love a good book. Cool. Yeah. Um, and pro tip, don't accidentally uh, get a dog scarf that you think is for an adopted <laughs> human. I'm still dying over that. Please share that story again. Because <laughs> right before we started recording, I was just dying. <laughs> okay. So... <laughs> I went into a, a little gift shop and I saw, this was right right when I started exploring my adoptee experience. So I was just starting to talk about it. I saw like a handkerchief, the kind of thing that like goes around your neck and it said, I'm adopted. And I looked at it and I was like, um, I don't think I would wear that. And the person there was like, that's for dogs. <laughs> uh, so if you, that just gives you a taste. <laughs> Like it's my gotcha day on your birthday or something. Like it'd be so horrible. No, yes. <laughs> oh no, no, and yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was very on your brain. That's so funny. So last thing, will you just share where people can find you, how they can follow along, um, and or work with you? Absolutely. So my practice is called No Strings Nutrition. I'm based out of Los Angeles, California, but I see clients all across the country. Um, you can go to my website, www.nostringsnutrition.com, or you can follow me on Instagram at no.strings.nutrition. Um, and I am accepting new clients right now for one-on-one -on -one work, so you can get in touch with me in my DMs via email to get that conversation started. And I would love to meet you. Yay. Thank you so much. I will have everything linked in the show notes for everyone so they can easily get in touch. Thank you for this conversation. I so enjoyed this. Thank you, Michelle. It's so, I don't know. I'm just so grateful for your openness to like learning about this topic and just being honest. And yeah, that's really special. And there you have it. That is our show for today. I hope you enjoyed it and had some good takeaways. If you did, I would love to hear what's resonating for you. Send me a DM on Instagram or share the episode to your stories and tag me so that I can see that you're listening and hopefully loving it. 
You can also share this episode with a friend who you think would enjoy it and spread some intuitive eating love to everyone around you. As always, five-star ratings and reviews are so appreciated, so you can drop me one of those. Be sure to also check out the show notes for all the links that I mentioned and more information on myself and my nutrition private practice. Other than all that, I hope you have a great day and a great week, and I will catch you in the next episode.